Hi there, and welcome to another Dishcast. I'm psyched to be here. I'm in the middle of all sorts of personal drama. I'm trying to find my phone, which has been... Oh, from Lyft. I saw on Twitter. <laughs> the guy, what's this update on your phone? I don't know. I'm still waiting for my phone. I'm still trying to contact him and see if I can find a way to get it back. So anyway, it's in process. It's been a day now without my phone and someone has it and won't give it back to me. So we'll see how that goes. Also, I, I'm just, I'm just, I might as well tell you all what's going on in my life. I just came back from the doctor for my hip replacement and apparently I'm doing great. Apparently it's all healing up great, but I was an incredibly bad bleeder apparently in the operating room and swelling, swelling that was far beyond what he said most of his patients endure. So that helps me a little bit feel better about feeling such a awful for a couple of weeks. But anyway, I'm still back here, even after John Stewart and all that stuff. So, But I'm delighted today to have an extraordinarily sane and humane person with us to talk about a whole bunch of stuff. He's the Sterling Professor of Social and Natural Science at Yale University, where he directs the Human Nature Lab. He's also the co-director of the Yale Institute for Network Science. His latest amazing book is called Apollo's Arrow, The Profound and Enduring Impact of Coronavirus on the Way We Live. He also wrote a book we're going to talk about a little bit called Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of Good Society, which is in which we actually are evolved not to be total assholes to one another. And that, that grand theory is something explored in that book. And I haven't read that book, so I'm, but, I, but I'm now I'll put it on my list. Nick, can I call you Nick or is it Nicholas? Nicholas, my friends call me Nicholas, Andrew, and I'm so I'm, glad to finally meet you face to face. Nicholas, yeah, that's great. I'm glad you just, I'm always an Andrew and I, 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 I just stick with my original name and Andy never quite took off for me. How are you? I'm good. I'm emerging a little bit from the pandemic cocoon, so I'm generally good. Aren't we all? It seems right now we're in this moment where I'm looking at my local stats and they're kind of pretty minimal at this point. It doesn't feel like I'm at much risk. I got my booster, mm -hmm. but then I read these stories of it coming back and we're allegedly about to have a big wave in the Northeast. At least there are fears of such. Mm -hmm. Tell me where you think we are. Okay, well, let me take a couple of minutes to set the stage. I mean, a lot is known. We are not the first generation of human beings alive to face this ancient threat. Uh, a lot of plagues are a part of the human experience. They're in the Bible. They're in Shakespeare. They're in Cervantes. I mean, the Iliad, the oldest work of Western fiction, begins with a plague, right? The, where, so, so they're part of human experience. And we're also not the first generation of humans to face a respiratory pandemic. We have 300 years at least of good accounts of respiratory pandemics. And, and therefore, with all this knowledge and all this scientific expertise, it's possible to form an opinion about what is the typical trajectory and where do we stand on it. So the way respiratory pandemics, serious respiratory pandemics, which is what COVID-19 is, typically unfold is they have three phases. There's a kind of opening act, the immediate period, then there's the intermediate period, and then there's the post-pandemic period. The immediate period, which is, as I said at the beginning of the pandemic, would last until 2022, which is what's happening. It takes a couple of years, is when we feel the biological and epidemiological force of the pandemic, which is when mm. the virus is new and sweeps mm. through the human population, mm -hmm. like, a, like a tsunami washing ashore. You know, the water just comes and causes devastation. And then eventually you reach a certain threshold, both biologically and socially. And the biological threshold is this notion of herd immunity, where enough people become immune to the condition, either because they got infected or preferably 
because they got vaccinated, enough people become immune that the the epidemic potential of the virus is nullified. So the, the, the cases were growing, 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 and then you reach this plateau, and then the cases come down, and then the virus becomes what's known as endemic. It's The virus hasn't been eradicated. It's still present. It still kills people, like measles. Measles still exists. It can still kill people. But we just have a few cases of measles every year in the United States, sort of in the background. And that has to do with the fact that as a population, we have immunity. And we can talk more about that if you want. But that is going to be reached in the United States in the coming months. And then we will enter the intermediate phase. So we're on a glide path now with this pandemic. And that intermediate phase is when we cope with the, you know, we put the pen, the biological and epidemiological impact of the virus behind us. Mm-hmm. But now we have to cope with the clinical, social, psychological, and economic aftershocks. It's like the wave, the tsunami, the water finally recedes, which is great. But now we got to clean up the mess. You know, there are boats 10 miles inland. The houses are all destroyed. we got to clean up the mess. And that's what we're going to have to do in our country for the next couple of years. We're going to have to cope with millions of people who are grieving the loss of their loved ones, millions of people who are not killed, but rather have been disabled by this condition, Million of children, millions of children who miss school and are behind, millions of workers who are rejiggering their lives, who lost their jobs or businesses that closed, trillions of dollars we're borrowing, all of these changes, you know, and, and, and we're going to have this kind of stuttering fits and starts, masks on, masks off, the boosters and all of this stuff, plus coping with the socioeconomic aftershocks. And then roughly in 2024, we're going to enter the post-pandemic phase. And I think that's going to be a little bit of a party, a little bit like the roaring 20s of the 21st century, like the roaring 20s of the 20th century. I think people that will kind of, there'll be a kind of a, a joie de vivre and a kind of risk-taking and a kind of party that's going to take place. Because I think people will have felt will have been cooped up from the pandemic, which is what we've all experienced. And they're going to relentlessly seek out social interactions in in restaurants, in nightclubs, in bars, in sporting events, in political rallies. I think we're going to see a lot of political ferment, Andrew. People are going to start spending their money. We savings rates skyrocketed during the pandemic, as they have during plagues for centuries, by the way. Now people are going to start spending their money. And and so we're so we're going to see we're going to see also maybe some loosening of sexual mores. My uh, sister Katrina always says whenever I say this, I need to emphasize that this is only applies to unmarried couples. That married <laughs> couples, married couples are not going to see this kind of beneficial change. Suddenly, your sex life is springing back to life. Yes, exactly. You can't get enough of each other. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, but anyway, the point is, I think it's going to be a kind of kind of reaction, and and that too, if you think about it, you know, when when the when the calamity affects a society whether it's a famine or a war or a volcano or an earthquake or, or, a, or a plague, when it's over, the survivors rejoice. And I think that is going to be a little bit what we have roughly beginning in 2024. And I'll say one more thing and then I'll shut up. All of this that I just told you depends on the non-emergence of, of new, more worrisome strains of the virus. So it is if new strains of the virus emerge that either fully evade the vaccines or that are much more deadly, then all bets are off on what I just told you. And then we may go back to square one. Uh, And I put the probability of that at between one and 10%. I think it's unlikely, but it's possible that we could have that. Anyway, that's a sketch based on, and, and by the way, this is a sketch that I put in the book, which was published 
well, the original version was published two years ago. The revised version is just a few months old. But, and it wasn't because I was a special genius. It's just because I went to school, right? I mean, this right. is just well, this is what they teach you. I I was assigned to write an essay about this. So I did all my that reading too. And the, the, the general sequence of events that you describe is seems to be reflected in almost every single plague epidemic that we've seen in history. I got the timing wrong. I think we all did. I mean, I think we thought originally that these vaccines were going to make it completely impossible to get COVID again. So last, some of the four last, good God, when we all showed up after the vaccines had come in, it was last summer, and went bananas. I was in Provincetown, the famous place yes. where we all were. A big party. People went nuts. They haven't been able to go out forever. They didn't have, didn't hadn't been able to go dancing or do anything, and they just went bonkers. And then they all got COVID again. Yes. And even though the vast majority of them were were fine, no one died. Well, that's the crucial thing. That's that because of the vaccine. Less, that was the I could feel that thing, exactly what you're saying. It was like the the carnival in Rio in 1919, yeah. which was apparently. And something that you had to see to believe. The sheer cray-cray that went on. Yeah. The psychological impact of plagues is fascinating to me, too, because it seems to disinhibit people. I mean, I'm thinking of the flagellants, for example. Or I'm mm -hmm. thinking of, of all sorts of bizarre religious, spiritual, psychological yes. expression that seem to emerge. And I think we've seen this here, too, right? With these sudden passionate movements these uh, the the BLM stuff that happened that summer there is a you know th there is a human response to being presented with the risk of your own mortality in ways that the difference now of course is that in the old days i mean the previous plagues people were used to dying of things and things happened it wasn't quite as dramatic as when it happens now i can't imagine what would have happened if covid for example was far more infectious or far more fatal. It would have been, I think, a different psychological response, no? Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I've made similar arguments. I think there's a lot in what you said. First of all, the psychological response. I mean, plagues are often a time of, of, of grief and loss. We, you know, we mourn our, we lose our lives. We, we lose our livelihoods. We lose our way of life. And, and there's a kind of a depression that can set upon the population. Marcus Aurelius writes about this in A Plague in Rome 2,000 years ago. And he said even this mental malaise was even worse than the physical malaise, you know, that the whole city felt depressed, as it were. But the more, not more, but equally interesting thing you emphasize is this notion that plagues are often a time when there's a search for meaning. And historically, this manifested itself by a rise in religious, and first, certainly during the bubonic plague, it was apocalyptic, right? You know, 30%, 50%, 80% of the residents of a city would die bodies would pile up so fast on the streets. There, the saying was there were not enough of the living were left to bury the dead. I mean, just an astonishing level of mortality, which is nothing like, of course, what we have had. So people, you can understand why they would be. But even in this plague, we were more religious. So despite the fact that churches and synagogues and temples closed and the prayerfulness rose in our society, a very typical response. How did you, how, how do we know that? Uh, from Gallup surveys of various kinds that survey mm. random samples of Americans and ask them if frequency of prayer and so on. Mm. And so this is a very typical response, but more, more important even was the fact that these plagues are a time when, when there's a search for meaning. Mm -hmm. And it's quite natural if you under, think about that. You know, death is walking the streets. People are sequestered in their homes. It's a, often a time for reflection. People uh, sort of revisit what's important to them in their own lives and what kind of society they want to live in. 
And in terms of the personal search for meaning, we, I mentioned the religiosity, but there are other things. For example, a lot of this occupational rejiggering that we're seeing reflects, I think, the search for meaning. We've seen a boom in applications to medical school and nursing school hmm. because pe people see these as meaningful occupations. We've seen truckers, so-called essential workers, people who previously may not have seen their jobs in the same way as being instrumental to the functioning of our society, see their work differently. People changing careers because of the plague, which is rife now, as you know, exiting the workforce or switching jobs. But even more, this collective expression that you alluded to with the Black Lives Matter protests, for example. So I think the, the murder of George Floyd that occurred two summers ago and which catalyzed this extraordinary Black Lives Matter protests in our society, some of the biggest protests we've seen nationally in a long time, didn't just reflect the long history of the racially inflection, the racial inflection of violence, of, of police violence in our society, although police killed many white people too, of course, didn't just reflect the fact that it was a hot summer, didn't just reflect the fact that people were unemployed because of the pandemic, didn't just reflect the fact that people were bored and at home. These are all classic explanations for social movements and riots and so on, but also reflected a search for meaning. People were wondering, what kind of society do I want to live in? And on the left, this manifested itself in this BLM protest. And interestingly, on the right, if you look at the January 6th insurrection and the storming of the Capitol, what fascinated me about that was that those people went in without masks. They weren't trying to conceal their identity. They thought what mm. they were doing was patriotic. Right. They they, too, in a way, were searching for meaning. Right. They were narrating, you know, what was important. So I think these movements that we've seen and incidentally, the political polarization, which has worsened, which preceded the pandemic, but which has gotten worse, I think, are partial reflections of the of the epidemic in the ways that you mentioned. Yeah, the I'm struck by the fact that like the plague in the sixth century absolutely catalyzed the rise of Christianity. It seems that that was the moment when the old Roman gods were seen to have failed and in which people were actually kind of impressed by these new weird sect called Christians because they were, they took care of people who were dying. They had a slightly different attitude towards the utilitarian sense of the world. And, and that impressed people. And then you also saw, of course, in the Black Death, the failure of the institutional church to really address or to answer the, of course, who can answer the, the theodicy question in that moment. And so you began to see a rise in private devotion and individual paths to God, which you can argue, and historians have argued, was a critical beginning for the Reformation. I agree 100. Yeah, I agree uh, 100. Yeah. And of course, also transformed the uh, class structure in some countries, because simply because labor, labor by being so much cut in to such an extent had much greater leverage. I mean, the inflation we are suffering now is directly related to this plague. I mean, obviously, it's now being compounded by other factors, but clearly that's another, another feature of it. And then we can forget that, right? We, can, we keep seeing these events without the context of the plague, when in fact it makes a lot more sense when you kind of consider that context in the, in the broad background of things. Yeah, 100%. So the plague of Justinian that you alluded to in the 6th century had the effects that you describe. And, and then, of course, in the 14th century, the Black Death had, um, had many of the implications. I think it did pave the way for the Reformation and also had other implications because the people saw during the Black Death that the priests didn't know what to do, right. hence the Reformation. 
And the, the rulers didn't know what to do, hence new forms of government, and actually paved the way for capitalism, actually, too. You alluded to that a little bit. And the, the scientists, the doctors didn't know what to do. So it kind of paved the way for some of these new, the anatomists, you know, who started dissecting human bodies and started thinking about, well, how does the body work and so on. So science, government, capitalism, religion, all, I think, were affected, I think, rightly, many historians have argued, by the Black Death, which was, of course, calamitous in Europe. My favorite anecdote in that is the fact that scribes, there were many fewer scribes, because they were all dead, and yet there was a demand for reproducing, and that created the incentives for the printing press. That's the, amazing. The, the, I hadn't heard the, that link that, before. That, is a, that, that encouraged people to figure out new ways to kind of get words on a piece of paper that didn't require that number of people. So it labor. also galvanized productivity in, in that way and kick-started, well, we know what, printing kick-started, you know what. Yeah, well, and eventually led to the internet and to us. But I think, but I think, I think they, to this sorry end. Yeah, sorry, <laughs> yes, exactly. It's like those, it's like those things that show wolves and domesticated, you know, chihuahuas. And it says, you know, this, this is what, this is what human domestic what human domestication did to you. Uh, but no, but I think this allusion to inflation that you made is also very important because if you think about it, it's instructive to compare war, like we're seeing in Ukraine, unfortunately, and, and a plague. Because a because a war, in a war, you kill people and you destroy capital. I mean, there's no worse waste of money than to build munitions and detonate them. You know, all the money and labor and the material that goes in, mean, then you explode it. Or in wars, you know, you destroy bridges and roads and factories and farms are filled with mines and have big holes in them and you kill cattle and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. You just destroy a lot of capital and labor. But in plagues, plagues are like a kind of neutron bomb. They kill the people, but they leave the capital intact, the gold, the mines, the roads, the buildings, all of that stuff is there still. And so it changes the labor capital ratio. And as you said, labor becomes dear and capital is, is cheap. And typically what you find after serious plagues, and it's a little debatable whether COVID-19 qualifies. You can talk about that if you want. But you typically find, uh, some analysts find, that, that the real rate of return, the real interest rate rises for about 40 years after the plague, peaking about 20 years later. And uh, I'm sorry, real wages, I'm sorry, real wages rise for about 40 years, peaking 20 years later. And uh, interest rates decline, real interest rates decline with a nadir like about 20 years later for the reasons that, that we just mentioned. So there are these long-term reverberations from these plagues. And I want to go back to a point you mentioned earlier, which is bad as this epidemic is, you know, these plagues that you and I are talking about now, like bubonic plague or smallpox or cholera, they just, they just killed everybody. I mean, our plague is like a plague light let alone the fact that we also have vaccines to help us cope with it. So we should be grateful that we don't have, that this coronavirus, for its own God-given reasons, only kills about half to 1% of the people that it infects. Yeah, there, are other, of course. there are other coronaviruses that kill 10 or 30% of the people they infect. And just imagine if that had been what we were facing. Well, for some of us, of course, this is the second plague of our adult lives. And the fatality rate for HIV was basically 100%. And it lasted a long time. And it killed 600,000 people in the end in this country over a period of time. That's as, 
that's rivaling COVID, except it did so in a much tinier population. And so the impact was that much more intense. And it was also, unlike COVID, an absolutely almost gruesome illness once yes. it took hold of you. The sheer torture that it imposed upon these poor men's bodies were if you had not if you weren't there to witness it, it's very hard to explain what it was like to see someone die of AIDS. But it was it was an absolutely brutalizing and emotionally devastating experience. My own my own and this is a paradox that Camus talks about and that other people talk about that that I felt was that actually as that plague receded, as the as the drugs came online in 1996 and we had this astonishing drop. I mean, fantastic, amazing achievement for science. The first and only retrovirus ever to have been tackled by science and stopped. But there was no rejoicing. There was acute depression among so many of us because we were both, well, it lasted over a decade and we were exhausted. But we also, survivor's guilt, which is a weird expression. I didn't even realize I was feeling it because I didn't, feel guilty, but I just felt utterly flat. I felt no reason to get up. And you would think the opposite. I'd survived. I was, I was one of those that slipped under the, the fence, as it were. But you're right. What also happened to us, that generation that survived, is that we did go nuts. And that's, that's the origin of the meth epidemic that followed the, uh, the AIDS epidemic, that people got into crazy-ass sex, got into escapism, got into hedonism in a way that was just completely self-destructive, and methamphetamine was a way to sort of do that. So you see this in different ways, in different plagues, with different populations, but and yet the same experience is, is there. Uh, Let me reflect on that for just a moment. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was a hospice doctor. I don't know if you knew this about me. I took care of people mm. who were dying. I was, mm. a I was a hospice doctor for many, many years. I stopped seeing patients about 12 years ago now in around 2010 or so. And I, I took care of uh, AIDS patients. Uh, about a third of my patients in the early 1990s had, had HIV. A third had uh, cancer. A third had HIV. A third of the hospice patients. And a third had all other diseases combined. I remember the deaths from Kaposi sarcoma and pneumocystis pneumonia. I, re I took care of those people. And they were, as you said, one of the things that was they were devastating uh, diseases in young, principally men, principally gay men, who were in the prime of life, the very fit individuals that were young. It was just awful. I mean, awful, awful, awful. And I remember when uh, 1996, just as you allude to, because I was practicing hospice medicine, when heart, highly active antiretroviral therapy was discovered and, and perfected over a number of years thereafter with additional medications, the hospices emptied out. We went from mm -hmm. having 30% hospice patients to like 1%. Mm -hmm. It was just an amazing, like literally in the course of a year, the, the, the nature of the practice that I was engaged in just completely, completely changed. So I absolutely remember those days and that. And although the total number of AIDS deaths over the prolonged period was substantial, as I talk about in Apollo Zero, actually, I'm just looking now at, at figure uh, 16 on, in the book because I try to quantify this. Because COVID-19 is a primarily illness of the aged, 75% right. of the people died were 65, right. and HIV was primarily a disease of young, even though, roughly speaking, the total number of deaths were similar, the number of years of life lost from HIV in its, in its course, 30-year course, was about three to four times as high as the number wow. of years of life lost due to uh, COVID. So in, wow. from that quantification, HIV still is the ascendant epidemic. By the way, 
the opioid epidemic is even worse. The, the number of years of life lost from the opioid epidemic is, which is still ongoing, you know, is astonishing. And in a way, this also touches on another is thing. It, but is, hold this, yeah. just Nick, just a, a, a small point yeah. that we call it an opioid epidemic, but of course, it's not a virus, and it's not it's not a natural entity. It's it's a function of basically it seems to me primarily a function of fentanyl's effect on on your <laughs> your ability to to yeah. breathe instantly. So so with that caveat, but I do think it's a, it's fascinating to think of plagues as affecting different age groups. If COVID, for example, it seemed to me had affected and been mo- had had the same impact on the under 15s as it did on the over 85s it would be a completely different situation. Completely. Uh, if it were killing children, we would be in a completely different world. And it's just accident. And, and 1918 is also striking because 1918 seemed because, and you know more about this than I, but as I, as I remember, the Spanish flu, let's call it, even though we're not supposed to do that anymore, but, but you know, that one. Yeah, the well, bad it one actually probably started in the United States, but it is. Called it might have just in one of the one of the uh, in Kansas camps, in a the, pig yeah, farm. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And of course, it was massively facilitated by war, by the the movement yeah. of people all over the place. But it affected young people in their prime. It killed soldiers in their prime in vast numbers. Yes. But the older people didn't get it, partly because they. They well, had the very some old immunity. Did. The very old did. It had a, a double, was, famously had a W-shaped mortality function. But go on. No, no, no. I, I don't want. I don't, I don't have more expertise than you. I just know what I've read. But, but, it, but it struck me that there was a there was a whole generation in there that had some kind of immunity from a previous flu epidemic about twenty years before or something. So it's weird, isn't it? <laughs> the, the, yeah, these different well, I, things and have very different impacts depending upon the age group and even. Sex, right? Because that also affects. Now, COVID. What what ended up in the end? Was it in the end? Did more men die than women? Yes, yes. It it, it differentially affected men in terms of mortality. Men are about a fifty percent higher risk than women of dying. About fifty percent higher than women. Yes. So more men than women. Yes. I mean that's uh, that's true. Wow. That's not often, you, that's you not never, often discussed. Right. It isn't. I mean, Why? It's a, <laughs> this drives me crazy. Well, because it's I don't know how many pieces I read during the epidemic, and I'm, these are perfectly decent pieces to write, and it's a perfectly good point to make, which is that women have have dealt had dealt, dealt the brunt, have faced the brunt yes. of this extra work, kids, life, jobs, all the rest of it. Totally That's understand true. it. Perfectly legitimate and important point, but exactly. never, never an article about how men are dying at far greater rates. Never a question. Yeah, about I that, think that's. I think that's right. I think a lot of the social consequences have been borne by women disproportionately, but the clinical consequences by men. So, right. and, and this comes up in a lot of conversations where, you know, about how much more difficult it has been to, for example, be a female professor in a time of COVID. And it has been for the reasons that you mentioned, because on average, women are more likely to have childcare duties and so on. But it's but death is really bad for productivity. <laughs> and so it's been worse. I want to look up the statistics. COVID deaths by sex in USA. Let me just quickly look it up. Here's CDC data, something recent. Let's just see what the current ratio is. Overall rate for death rate is 1.6 times the death rate for women. I just want to find a count. Mm. Uh, so what I told you is exactly right, but I just want to look at the total number Yeah, I mean, it's twice as many men in middle age, twice as many men have died as women. So it's, it's, I'll just say, so, um, 
you know, so the so the gap is the gap in the counts is enormous. I I don't have the precise numbers at my hand. You, but you kind of wonder how many people have lost fathers. Yeah, and hundred. How many people have lost brothers? Hundreds uh, of thousands of more men have died than women in the United States and internationally. So. And it's interesting to see what difference that would make to the impact and effects of the plague. But I think partly because our media just cannot even consider that men could ever suffer more than women. It's just not in the the mindset of people who work at newspapers. We don't have this reported on at all. It doesn't fit a narrative, even though it happens to be completely true. Let's uh, When I look at plagues, you also get a little insight into human nature. And, and, and this is maybe a way to talk also about your other book, is that, in fact, plagues have not overall been terribly kind to human nature. It, it hasn't, you would hope that it would bring out the best in all of us, that we would get together and help each other and support each other. But when mortality really arrives, the, the examples of cruelty, callousness, escape, abandonment are, are, are overwhelming. Am I overstating that? And what does that tell us about human nature itself? Well, you know, it's very interesting. I'm looking if I could find a, a quote, a passage uh, handy here in some notes that, but I don't, oh, here we go. Yeah. So, so this idea is also an old idea. Some people have argued and have observed for centuries that under the pressure of a common enemy, you know, a plague that's just killing us all, wouldn't you think we would band together and that it would elicit from us a kind of shared appreciation for our common humanity? And uh, here's a quote from, from um, the third century of the Common Era from St. Cyprian, when there was a devastating plague in Rome that was killing 5,000 people a day. By the way, Rome, Rome at the time was, had a million people. It was just an enormous metropolis, a super sophisticated city. 5,000 people a day is a lot of people to be dying. That far surpasses the New York mortality that we saw in March of 2020. And they dropped dead in the streets. They yes. dropped dead doing their groceries. They dropped dead all over the place. It, That's it, exactly, it, yeah, and very visible manifestation. So St. Cyprian says, it disturbs some that this mortality is common to us with others. In other words, it doesn't spare the rich and it doesn't spare the well-born. It just kills everyone. And yet, what is there in this world which is not common to us with others? So long as we are here in the world, we are associated with a human race in fleshly equality. And so this idea is an old idea. But in competition with that idea is also the sense that when there's, you know, that every man for himself, you know, like when there's this kind of dog eat dog. And we also have examples. We have these extraordinary examples of both aspects of human nature, of of bodies in the streets, of people abandoning their friends, of people abandoning their families during the Black Death, for example, of, of people entering the houses of, of, of people suffering from bubonic plague to rob them while they were yes. immobilized by this disease. But then we have these extraordinary stories. Pope Clement IV, I'm sorry, Pope Clement VI. Get your popes right, Nick. I know. <laughs> But he was amazing. No fucking up the popes. I know. He was amazing, actually. I was reading him. He was amazing. <laughs> Nicholas, sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm just calling you Nick, sorry. No, that's okay. Uh, Andrew, he was amazing, Pope Clement VI. You would think he would be anti-Semitic, but he was not. He said he said there was all, at the time, in, the, in, the, in 1347, there was this huge rise in anti-Semitism because the Jews yeah. were widely blamed. And this, by the way, is another typical feature. Yeah. During times of plague, we 
try to blame others. So during HIV, the gays were blamed, or the Haitians were blamed, or IV drug users were blamed. And you know, during COVID, immigrants were blamed, or the Chinese were blamed. Leah, someone else has to be blamed. And during the bubonic plague, you know, the Jews were blamed. And they were they were put to death in great numbers. They were buried alive, they were burnt at the stake. It was just awful. And the Pope himself said, he goes, it is widely said that the Jews were responsible for this, you know, awful situation. He goes, and if they were responsible, then they would rightly have these horrible deaths. He goes, but he goes, it hasn't escaped my notice that they are dying like we are. <laughs> you, know? Yes. you know, so the Pope reasons, the Pope himself reasons, he says, this is very unlikely that the Jews are causing this problem because they're dying just like we are. And we should not, therefore, tr- mistreat them. And the Pope showed great personal heroism during this plague. It's just an amazing stories. And here's my point. Give me an the example first, of the heroism. Do you, do you, is there, he is, he took uh, care personally. Took care of the people who were dying. He ministered to the yeah. sick. He yeah. he. The Danube was full of bodies. I mean, he consecrated not the Danube. I forgot which river it was. This is we're now going deep into medical history, which I yeah, know no, some, no, of course, some sort no, no, of no. at the outer limits of my memory. But he consecrated he consecrated rivers because the the rivers were clogged with dead bodies and they didn't have a proper Catholic burial. And he said, you all can go to heaven. In fact, he even said the non-Christians can go to heaven. You know, he said, it's such a calamity. You're all blessed. I mean, the the stories about him are, are pretty incredible. Now, maybe there are other historians listening to this who know other awful things that this Pope did. I don't know. But the stuff that I read. He absolutely said that at a time when there was almost pathological anti-Semitism. I mean, there's yes. a story I, in Basel, I don't know whether you read the story, in Basel, they rounded up all the Jews onto a single island and put them all in a, a wooden house, sort of, a, and they set it alight. There was yes. a mass burning. Yes. Uh, just staggering. Staggering. horrifying it was. So, so he was extraordinary, enlightened, and humane from everything that I've read, and 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 the and that the, was the uh, beginning. And, that was the beginning of anti and one of the core underpinnings of anti-Semitism in Europe was was sort of was the plague. Uh, a flame and the plague, and it yeah. continued thereafter. Also, if you read Boswell and other historians, it was also the first time in that period that sodomy became this obsession of the church and it was the worst sin really? possible. And that is when homophobia began to really take off in, in Christian Europe. Before then, up until the 13th century, Christianity actually was shockingly chill about that question. And it just was galvanized by that event. Again, this desire to seek enemies within that you can't see necessarily, but might be there, who are who are infesting your country. And it's worth remembering too, and it's personal, but you know, um, the United States banned anyone with HIV from entering the United States who wasn't a U.S. citizen for about 15 years. Yes, I actually that's, remember that's this from incredibly your old ir- incredibly irrational policy, which took a long time to get rid of. Yes. But that kind of irrationality is, is, what, is, is what plagues often produce. Uh, well, we were talking about that, and also we got onto the Pope because I was about to finish the story, and I want to come back. I mean, I want to go yeah, like ten, 10 different directions with you right okay. now. But, but, but the nurses, the, 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 the nuns that were taking care of the, uh, the, the people dying showed great valor and humanity and died in great numbers caring for people dying from bubonic plague. And so you have this, just to finish that part of our conversation, you mm. have this ways in which plagues elicit both the best and the worst in, in human beings. And this has been long appreciated. Now, as, as you mentioned in, in Blueprint, in, in the book I wrote on 
which was in 2019 book on the evolutionary origins of a good society, I, I talk about, you know, I, I talk about how, you know, for that for too long, in my view, scientists and the person on the street, maybe you, you were saying before we got started recording our conversation, how you have a more Hobbesian kind of perspective on human nature. Uh, I, I, would say I have a more Augustinian. I, I, I genuinely always expect the worst. And if something good happens, I'm psyched and encouraged. And I, and I tend to think politics is the management of the worst. And, and if you can just keep that awfulness at bay, you're doing pretty good as a society. I, 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 I'm a little bit of a Tory pessimist when it comes to creating the, 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 the perfect world. So I don't just, I actually agree with you on that, on, on, and actually it's an interesting political conversation that could be had, but mm-hmm. the way I like to frame it is that there are many, many people who have for very long emphasized the evil parts of human nature on our capacity for cruelty and violence and selfishness and mendacity and, and, and the torture and war and every century is replete with horrors. And I know this. But it is also true that we are capable of great goodness, that we have a capacity for love and friendship and cooperation and teaching and all of these other wonderful qualities, which have not typically gotten the attention they deserve. And my argument is that these good qualities must necessarily have outweighed the bad. Because if every time I came near you, you were violent towards me or stole from me or filled me with lies, I would be or better took your off. iPhone and didn't give it back to you. For instance, <laughs> yeah, for example, speaking of, which, by the way, I don't understand, have you offered him a reward for that? Yes, like, I've offered him 200 bucks. I'm like, I'll pay you anything. What, name your price. Uh, I can't understand what's in it for him to, I like, it's locked. I, I don't understand. He's just not responding. I don't understand. Anyway, okay, but leave no, that yes. aside. Yeah, leaving your, let's, yeah, let's, leaving your, your own. Let, me, let, is, me, let me focus on one part of what you said there, which is friendship, because it's a, it's a fascinating topic. When I did some, I wrote a little essay about friendship a long time ago. As a virtue, it is hard to read the ancient writers, the medieval writers, even the early modern writers, without seeing that they regard friendship as an, an, probably the highest form of relationship imaginable. It, had, it was cultivated. There was an understanding of its nature, of how it could express itself. There were rules. And the idea, I mean, Aristotle regards friendship, for example, as the uh, the second thing important to virtue because if you are virtuous but have no friends to be virtuous with what's the point of it and well, t- tell me why we and today we no we never hear studies or s- discussions of friendship well i've spent 20 years studying friendship so it's like something i'm i would love to talk to you about first of all let me just go let's back let's talk about it well okay well let's just this is again i like want to go in 10 different directions with you i, I wish we were actually having a whiskey right now that'd be even better I but too. well i wish we had i, mean, yes, I, 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 might, I have a joint somewhere i could probably <laughs> right, but somewhere. we're not in the same room so it won't help but the, the on the friendship thing uh, i i think if you think about human virtues most not all virtues are fundamentally social mm-hmm. we don't care if you love yourself or are kind to yourself, or are just to yourself. We care whether you love others, or are kind to others, or are just to others. So, so, so there's so many of our virtues are fundamentally social and arise in the interaction between people. Now, you can also have solitary virtues, like bravery, for example. You can be brave with respect to the fighting animals, or enduring stress in the environment, or and so on. But may, most virtues, I would argue, are social. So they, they're absolutely right, the ancient writers, to stress the ways in which these virtues are manifest, first point. Second point, this capacity for friendship 
if you think about it, humans, like other animals, form, you know, have sex with each other, mate with each other. And, you know, we have, we're endowed with all these capacities for lust and attachment and partner selection, all of which you can study in us like in any other animal. But we humans do something that is exceedingly rare in the animal kingdom. We form long-term, non-reproductive unions to unrelated conspecifics. Namely, we have friends. You Mm -hmm. form an associative tie with someone that is your friend that you don't have sex with, let's say. And, and, And this is exceedingly rare in the animal kingdom. We do it. Certain other primates do it. Elephants do it. And certain cetacean species do it. And this is completely different, by the way, than the kind of affiliative tie seen in, in, in packs of dogs who, who are often all related to each other or horses and so on. Other, you know, massing animals which form different kinds of social groups. So we form specific patterns of social networks, social network interactions based on affiliative or friendship ties. This is a very deep and fundamental aspect of the human experience. By the way, this also contributes to the, the uh, Enlightenment philosophers interested interest in in fact, many of the Enlightenment philosophers were trying to codify natural tendencies, like the freedom of assembly basically mm-hmm. says people like to pick who they people <laughs> want to pick who they want to hang out with. And the freedom of speech also codifies another thing, which is that we humans socialize, interact with each other so as to learn from each other. And this this is not well understood. This is not as widely appreciated as it needs to be. Why do we what is one of the benefits of friendship? One of the benefits of friendship is that I can learn from you. And this kind of social learning is incredibly efficient. Can I go on a short digression and I'll come back? Please. And yeah, we don't so, have to. We, everything's a digression here. Okay, good. Well, anyway, we so, 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 the, so the, the point is most animals can learn from interaction with the environment. You know, little fish in the sea can learn that if it swims up to the light, it'll find food there. Or if you put your hand in the fire, you learn that it burns, okay? That's Mm -hmm. called independent learning, when Mm -hmm. you learn something on your own by contact with the environment. But some animals can learn socially. For example, I can watch you put your hand in the fire, and I acquire almost as much knowledge, fire burns, but I pay Mm -hmm. none of the price. So social learning is incredibly efficient. For example, Mm -hmm. you and I go into the forest, you eat red berries and die you really paid a price for the acquisition of that knowledge. Well, I can watch you eat the red berries. I'm not going to eat those. And then I survive. So that's very efficient social learning. Mm-hmm. But we do something that's even rarer and scarcer, which is we don't just learn from each other by mimicry. In other words, I can watch you. You have no intention of teaching me anything. I just see you eat red berries and you die. And I'm like, oh, I better not eat red berries. You can teach me how to build a fire. Or you can teach me how to avoid red berries. And this is exceedingly rare in the animal kingdom. And so, and this capacity for teaching, which is fantastic that we have, lies at the root of our capacity for culture and our, therefore our capacity to acquire knowledge across centuries. To the, the reason you and I can benefit from HIV medication or roads or domesticated animals or bronze and metal and, and and calculus is because our ancestors for centuries labored to produce this knowledge and that knowledge is stored in the social interactions between us, which means that when we are born today, we benefit from all of this stuff that was created in the past, unlike other animals, which is one of the things that makes us 
one of the ascendant species on the planet. So, so friendship, you see, is is enormously important. Oh, and freedom of expression. We, in order to benefit from this, we have to be able to talk to each other unrestrictedly and share the information. So many of these political virtues, First Amendment virtues, are actually a reflection, I would argue, of our evolution tendencies and proclivities. There is a, if you also read the ancients on this, yes, you're absolutely right. The friendship or observing others or friendship teaching someone something that, that, that helps their life, helps them avoid danger or enriches them is, is unique. But there is a kind of friendship that also sort of ascends from that. For Aristotle, it was a friendship yes. is two virtuous people. That was the, the ultimate, ultimate form of friendship. And then you get to Montaigne, for example, in, in his essays, that amazing essay on friendship, De l'Amitié, or his uh, essay on his dead friend, Etienne de la Boétie, and his, his insurpassable grief at this person dying. And it's so fascinating that Augustine's going about this. It, it, the, the, the peons to friendship often come when the friend dies. The loss of the friend becomes this completely convulsive thought. And there's a sense that friendship has a higher quality than, than marriage because it is without instrumental purpose. <laughs> You're not creating new life. You're not actually adding anything to the world, but you are, you are with someone through life's experience, just with them. As also the other crucial thing is equality. Like there is no sense among two friends of a superior one and inferior. And if that does emerge, it's no longer a kind of friendship. It isn't. It's, and I rem, I'm, I'm, and the modern view, of course, which is, I, I, you, you know as well as I do, that the, the amazing phrase that Montaigne comes up with when, he, when he's asked, if I were forced to ask, what was it that made me so close to my friend, Etienne Laboesi, I would have to simply say, because it was him, because it was me. Now, that is, that is a huge shift from Aristotle. It is a celebration of being with another person through the existential experience of life. I don't know what I do without it. It's, it's, it's my core survival mechanism. It was certainly the core survival mechanism in something like a plague. And, and yet, again, and it's also true with men especially, I think. Women have easier ways to develop friendships. Men are, men are very difficult about it. And men also have this, this, this homosocial panic, you know, so two straight men can only be friends really if they're doing something together, playing golf, or, or they can't actually just hang out because that would be, what am I doing with you? We're having a drink, which I think is a shame because I think that there are cultures that will better enable that. But, and there are characters characteristics of male friendship that I think are particularly unique, like mutual abuse, which is as a form of affection, right? That's, isn't that, like, that's, that's the, that's, you know that you're really good with someone when they give you amazing amounts of shit, sometimes accurately, that are humiliating to you. But it's also part of the, the fun of a relationship that you, you can call the other person out. And the friendship creates a a bond that will that can resist that that, can, that isn't threatened by that. In fact, how you can you, use how can we that. How improve the friendships between in, men? 
in fact, you can use that. In fact, I give some examples of that in, in, in Blueprint. I talk specifically about examples in societies around the world of this kind of repartee that the, the, the public mocking of one's friends. It's a symbol yes. of our friendship that I have the license to tease you in public. In yes. fact, that's how we communicate that we are friends, because otherwise yes. we would kill each other. Those would be fighting words. But among right. us, we're friends. And this is how you demonstrate it. Uh, the Greeks have a word where they, they call each other malaka, which means masturbator. And people will call <laughs> their friends. They'll say, you jerk, you know, you jerk off. But it's a, it's a bit more pungent than, uh, than jerk. And, uh, and they call each other this all the time among themselves. But there are other, other much more, I give some examples from African culture. That's a great that, example. Do you have any other examples? That's, that's amazing. Well, I, I, don't I have have no point. idea that you would call each other wanker back in. Wanker. Back... All, all the time. Wanker. What yeah. do you always thought, wanker? Yeah, exactly. Uh, wanker. That's very good. It's actually wanker is a good analogy to, for Malacca and Greek. Exactly right. And so you call your friend, come on, you wanker. Come on, you wanker. It's like all the time. But anyway, <laughs> so that's that's that is that is true. You symbolize that. I do think there is a there are gender differences, fundamental gender differences in in on average in how fr- if friendships are expressed and manifested. And some of the cliches are true that men do things with their friends and women talk with their friends. And I and there has been, as you said, this kind of homoerotic kind of concern for a very long time about men. And by the way, the notion of friendship and homosexual interaction in ancient times, I mean, the classicists really struggle and debate with this. You know, was Patroclus yeah. Achilles' friend or was either his lover or both, right? And so there's a complicated topic as well, but but yes, I think that that is. But 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 this this notion of that all these philosophers, going back to Aristotle, have have meditate and Montaigne and so on have had meditations on friends. What's his name? Thoreau has oh, Emerson yeah. rather. Emerson has yes. this incredible meditation on friendship. He does, and, and it doesn't get as much attention in my judgment as it deserves. And it's it's a it's it, these are miraculous qualities that we humans have. And let me just shape a little bit more. So people like Steve Pinker, my friend Stephen Pinker have rightly, in my view, argued that that many of the wonderful things we see in the world today, the increase in peace, despite the war in Ukraine right now, the increase in, in, in survival, that these things relate to in the Enlightenment. They relate not only to scientific discoveries that facilitated and accelerated by the Enlightenment, the steam engine, electricity, and all of this stuff, all the, all the physics, the fundamental physics and chemistry that then gave rise to all these innovations that made the world better, but also related to Enlightenment philosophers, starting in Europe principally and then spreading around the world, notions of equality of human beings. People forget that abolition of slavery began with the Enlightenment philosophers. They, people nowadays, many people invert this, you know, they think that right. this is completely wrong. Slavery was present everywhere in the world. It was these Enlightenment philosophers that, wait a minute, human beings are fundamentally equal. Now, I understand it. It took a while to apply to everyone. But the philosophical principles were elaborated in this mirror. So no, commitment to democracy, commitment to individual dignity, commitment to freedom, and so on. So, so he, Pinker, Stephen, is right that many of these scientific innovations and philosophical innovations that took place beginning around plus or minus 200 years ago uh, have redirected the course of human history and, and led to a better life. He's right. But here's my point. It is not only to these recent developments that we can turn to provide an account of a good life. I would argue that more ancient, more powerful, deeper forces are at work, stretching back 300,000 years since the emergence of Homo sapiens sapiens, propelling a good life. And so the the, the Mm -hmm. way I argue it is that the arc of our evolutionary history is long, 
but it bends towards goodness. That once we once we start down the path of living socially, you get this virtuous self-reinforcing cycle where friendly people make friendly societies and friendly people thrive in friendly societies. So you get this positive feedback loop. Cooperative people make cooperative societies. Cooperative societies pave the way for the emergence of more cooperative people. And so over long spans of evolution, and, and one of the arguments for this, by the way, is that if you look at elephant society, elephants make social networks that are very similar to ours. And they mm. have other social qualities, like the capacity for individual identity, which mm-hmm. is what Montaigne was arguing about, which we, we, we can come back to if you want, and many other features, like the way elephants cooperate with each other, which they independently evolved to have by convergent evolution, completely separately. In other words, we make societies very similar to elephant societies. And, and this is kind of proof of the pudding. This is the proof that these good qualities have been shaped by evolution and are beneficial for how do we live together? How can we derive the benefits of living together and not kill each other? Well, evolution gives us these qualities. So that's my argument for a, a more... Well, now let me... Yeah. I, I agree with you. And I, I just... But I, and I can see that taking place, even though I think, obviously, our capacity for evil exists. And of course. Just, it, and, and, it, and continues. And the, the worry from someone like me, my point of view, is that our intelligence has made the possibility of our own wickedness far more destructive than it might otherwise have been. In other words, if if Vladimir Putin wanted to set off some nukes, he could. And and there could be some catastrophic yes. consequence of you may have a general improvement this way, but it's it's not everyone. And the minority or occasional sociopaths can absolutely unleash hell and un, and reverse all of it. Well, there's a, uh, even or a set theory. everything into chaos. There's even a theory, and I forgot the name for the theory. I'm sure some of your listeners will know. I forgot the name of the theory. One of the reasons we haven't found extraterrestrial life, there's a technical term for this, which is that we, um, the theory is that all societies eventually reach the stage where they completely destroy themselves. Like civilization, mm-hmm. you know, like like uh, a million, six million years ago, you know, primates couldn't kill off their own species. And a million years ago, they couldn't. And a hundred thousand years ago, couldn't. But eventually you reach a point where somebody hits the button and the earth is destroyed. And that's why we never get to the point where we have interstellar travel, because well before right. that, we're interstellar communication. Anyway, that's one of the theories. So so you're right. Well, what I do you think, make of that theory? I don't. I mean, I think there's life out there somewhere else, for sure, in the universe. I mean, it's my opinion. No, I mean, the, 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 however much progress we make, at some point, some loony is going to blow it up because our I don't, capacity for destruction increases with our capacity for knowledge and love i i think that's true that our capacity to destruction increases i think this theory may explain some of the reasons we are mm-hmm. unable to yet encounter you know extraterrestrial intelligence but there are many many other reasons that that's a mm-hmm. difficult challenge which i think me, play a bigger well, role in your discussion of evolutions sort of the, the fact over and this is also steven steven pinker's point which is that we seem to be getting more humane, let's put it that way. Yes. Over the over the eons. 
Well, eons is um, what I make. His argument is over the centuries. Yeah, well, he's he 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 can't see anything before the Enlightenment because he won't he won't. <laughs> I mean, I've had I wouldn't say anything to you right now. I wouldn't say to him himself, and we've had this he's discussion. A, but... He's a dear friend, and he's utterly brilliant. But yes, oh, I agree with. Yes, I, he's a he's a good friend of mine, and yes. he's unbelievably brilliant. Yes. So I'm not. I'm just saying that it seems to me that understanding Christianity, for example, that the 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 moment in human history when someone comes along and says actually love your enemy yes. or the the tribe that Turn you have cheek. associated constantly with evil is actually better than you that the revolution in human consciousness that Jesus brings us which is anti-tri universal and benign is an, an a moment in human evolution where things that have been building break out explicitly in, 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 in a work of, and in a mind and a body and a soul of genius. However you want to understand Jesus. I, I happen to believe more than that. And let me get you, then, then this is where I'm going. Teilhard de Chardin, I don't know whether you've, you know of him, but yes. he, some people will look at this and say, isn't this strange? You know, over time, love emerges. Let's put it that way. It, it, it gains strength. We, is God, behind this are we are we being brought slowly to god i would have no way of, of of answering that question there are very smart paleontologists i'm blocking his name right now simon i think is his last name or it's his first name i can see his book over there oh the the uh, british the, guy the, the guy that studies yeah, the, the burgess shale Yes. Yes. He wrote. He wrote. Oh, bloody hell! What's Life finds a way. Uh, no, no. What is it? I can no, go look. No, no. At God is watching you, or something. I think no, no. Well, he God may have written that. But hold on. Let me just step over there and find the name of this book. It's a brilliant book. <laughs> One second. Conway Morris. Simon Conway Morris. Oh, that's not who I was thinking of. But, Life but, solution. Okay. No, he makes an argument that actually it's a complicated argument. I'm not sure we should go into it now. It, 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 he's he he's trying to use a certain set of the the con theory ideas about convergent evolution and the repeated emergence of certain certain properties in animals to um, actually support claims about the existence of a creator. So I don't, mm. you know, I... I no, am... I'm just thinking about the trajectory. You know, Christianity always had this eschatological sense to it, you yeah. know, that, that somehow things were moving forward in a way, not yes. just cyclically. And of course, that idea then I think becomes sort of poisonous in the Enlightenment, where people think that there is some endpoint we can actually force or 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 rush. So I don't know where I'm going with that. Except I part of the mystery. I mean, I I always had a huge problem with the as a Christian with the notion of the end of the world and with the second coming. And for me, those things. I think I, my I, moment my moment of fear for that was reading James Joyce, the portrait of an artist as a young man, and his description of eternity. And you know, when when if every if every if every particle of sand on the planet were a year, you know, still you would burn in hell for longer than that. And, you know, I, I don't know, maybe you don't know the illusion, but it was very... I, I I did read that book a long yeah. time ago, and, and I do remember that. Out. Look, yeah, I was yeah. I was brought up an Irish Catholic by yeah. <laughs> by some quite some strict Irish Catholics, yes. so I I get it. Anyway, uh, so you were saying... But I became, I, I evolved over time, certainly in understanding Christianity, in, 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 in moving away from the notion that the God is about judgment as opposed to acceptance, and 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 a lot of what Jesus says, I think, is is really obviously directed towards that. Some things that he says are not, but it all depends which Jesus you're talking about. And there are several Jesuses in there, and several different accounts of who he was and what he said. And I I regard them as sort of 
fascinating records, but I don't regard them. And this, again, this makes me a heretic, I guess. And I do think they're inspired by God. But I think the idea that we have a very absolutely clear idea of who Jesus was and what he believed is, is not true. We have a great idea of a whole bunch of stuff that he said and did, but it's not, it's not to my mind, something that can be written down in a magisterium, which of course my own church disagrees with. <laughs> but, but hey, you had to at some point, and I understand well, no, the need to construct an institutional religion. But if I didn't believe at some level that, that love matters and that it is the sublimest, most important human endeavor, I think I would give up altogether. <laughs> well, even that, even that sentiment, and there are different kinds of love, you know that the capacity, that the, the fact that we're endowed with this capacity, which, I, from my point of view, has been shaped by evolution. You know, the I think miracle. sometimes the danger, and this is true with Jesus too, when you think that you can extend that love to everyone, regardless of anything, <laughs> and that's the goal, right? Agape, the yes. the Greek notion of love as universal. And I have problems with that. I'm not sure you can physically, psychologically. Some of the saints could do it, though, Andrew. You know this. And, you know, well, there, I know, there are these I guys. I know Francis did. Yes, St. Francis, maybe. <laughs> well, no, there, I mean, and I've met people like that. I've met serene yeah. people in my life yeah. who um, I met once this Zen monk 20 years ago when I was in the early days of my hospice training. And, and the man had the way about him. You know, you could mm. you could easily see why in bygone times they would think he glowed, you know, like that he mm. had a halo. Literally, he looked like there was something. No, different. I've met. Yeah, I've, I've been blessed enough to encounter yeah. those few special people. That's yeah. why. And so those people they love. Call... They move through the world in a different way than you and I yeah. do, right? Yeah, they do. I remember They're I had a, a story. Level. I, I this had a huge impact on me. I think I've told the story to on another interview or maybe two even. I don't remember, but when I was in medical school in the 1980s, I was at Harvard Medical School. And I was driving one day to school or some hospital duty I was doing. I think this, I have the time period right for this. And maybe it was, one second, let me just think about when it was in my life. It was definitely when I was living in Boston because I remember where I pulled over. So it was either in the 1980s or it was when I went back in 2001. I can't remember when this happened to me exactly. But I was driving down the street and they were interviewing a, a Buddhist monk and about how he cultivated a sense of peace. And one of the tricks that he used was re-narrating evil things into good things. So he would always try to see the good in the world. And one of the examples they gave was, well, I, I think maybe the interviewer asked him, they said, well, you know, what would you say if, if, if someone cut you off in traffic? And he said, well, without missing a beat, he said, well, you know, I would imagine that there is a, a woman in the back of the car who's delivering a baby and her husband is frantic to get her to the hospital in time so that this new life could come. And he spun this whole story like in an instant. And, and this man moved through the, his, the world constantly seeing the good in others, you know, and uh, refusing to see the evil. And, 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 the, I, and, the, and the point of the story was it was a professor at MIT who was doing some research on how that kind of way of thinking actually changes your brain, makes you a better person because that kind of discipline, that kind of meditative and philosophical discipline actually transforms you to be a better person. And it's I, and almost Andrew, cognitive behavioral therapy, right? It's, yes. It's, it's, it's training yourself. Andrew, I pulled over to the side of the street right in front, uh -huh. just before the MIT building. There was an old candy, I forgot what the name of that, there was a candy company that was there, an old brick building that was there. There's a little space you can pull over and wept. Oh yeah, I know, Neko, I think. Neko, yes, Neko, yes. Right in front of the Neko factory. 
And I wept. I said, who is this man? And how can I be more like him? I mean, I couldn't believe it, right? So there is this sense of some people among us can have this kind of agapi for the world. And that, that doesn't mean the rest of us should give up and not, not try to approximate that. But I do think there is something there is what I'm saying. I agree with you. There is this quality in the world. And all of us can have it to some extent. And some of us have it, you know, rather a lot. I have to internalize the thought that the person who picked me up and who I left my phone in the back actually has a really tough life. Yes. He's got a crazy amount of shit going on right now. Yes. He's earning some money by driving this car, and he literally has better things to do than end his rush home to deliver even, even for uh, $200. Deliver a phone, even for 200 bucks. Now, yeah. I, maybe that's the case. But, it's, but if I make myself think that, if I, if I make myself, that's why. And to be honest, I have thought that. I've thought, like, yeah. this guy, obviously, he's, 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 then it helps. Yes. There's a certain amount of basic discipline. Again, it's discipline. Yes. You gotta you gotta you gotta you gotta and that's of course, you know, Pascal talks about that as well. That in fact that becoming a better person is partly a, a product of practice. Yes. Uh, I, and also he actually believes that religious faith was. And if you just simply keep saying I believe this, eventually you will. Well, uh, this is what this is what Judaism says, right? Like they that yeah. rabbis debate which comes first, observance or belief. And they go back and forth. And what I love about Judaism is they record both the winning and the losing arguments. And the, and, and the losing argument was that you have to believe first and then you go to synagogue. No, you go to synagogue first and you keep going and then you believe eventually. And yes. I, I think that's exactly right, actually, for many things in life. I practice in order to believe. Yes. That is, that is, that is Pascal's view. And I have to say, you know, as someone who has practiced and, and, and does, that making myself go to Mass even when I really don't feel like it at all, even when I'm sitting there bored out of my brain or in a wrong mood, mm. just doing it is some kind of, we're not, we're embodied souls. So, you know, and the great, for me, the great genius of Catholicism is it understands our embodiment. Protestantism is all in your head. It's all this, it's, this, it's, this, it's an intellectual in some ways faith. Catholicism is about moving your body. It's about moving your body in ritual. It's about kneeling and getting up. It's about moments of time that you don't control. It's, a, it's about accepting your own physicality and your own body as a wonderful gift. And it's a sacramental religion. What I wanted, to, what I wanted to, in talking about agape and friendship, because it is a, it's agape and amic, well, in Greek, it would be philia, or amicitia caritas in the Latin, right? I think most people like you are incapable of agape. I also think that Jesus himself, when you study and think about his life, the famous statement, one of the greatest statements, he says, greater love hath no man than he laid down his life for a friend. Not humanity, not the world, but his friends. Yeah. And you see in the Gospels, for example, the friendship between Jesus and John, the beloved, and the agonies that John has after Jesus' crucifixion, you can really feel, or you can feel Jesus' connection with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. You realize that the reason Jesus risked his whole, his whole life to bring Lazarus back to the from the dead, which he knew, in terms of the gospel story, was going to alert the authorities to this is there's something really bad going on here. We got to get this guy. And it's just it's the last story before the passion because he was his friend. 
I didn't know, know looked, that Jesus and Lazarus were friends. Well, uh, very close friends, and and Mary oh, and that Martha. That I did not too. know. I thought Lazarus was someone he stumbled on. No, no, no. Lazarus oh. was the brother of Martha and Mary. Oh, I did not. And in know fact, that. who he's closest to. And in fact, the story is Mary comes out to him and says, "You did not come when he was sick, and now he's dead. You created the death of our beloved brother." And oh, your wow! I have to go reread this. And Jesus collapses in grief. And then he brings himself to bring him back to life. Now that, to my mind, which is one of the, the greatest miracles, is, is about friendship. It's about the particularity of someone. Oh. Because it was him, because it was me. Or in you know, my mentor, Oakshot, who also had a wonderful essay on friendship and some great ideas about it. Is friendship is defined by the absence of any desire to change the other person. It's complete acceptance of the other with all their failings and flaws and idiosyncrasies <laughs> because it's about that total acceptance of another person, which is a radical form of love, but is not quite a universal one. I just wish we were, and the reason I've spent some time on this is because I think the subject is incredibly important. I think that it's something our modern world does not fully appreciate or, and we would be happier much happier and feel better if we did focus on that, especially, I think, for men, for whom it is a bit of a struggle sometimes, but for whom friendship can be the most incredible and enduring support. I mean, I um, completely agree. I have best friends like Dan Gilbert and Kurt Langlotz and people in my life that, you know, are just there. And I talk a little bit about, anyway, so I completely agree with Do you. Do you friends with people you went to high school with still? Or I, I'm acquaintances with some of the people I went to high school. Mm -hmm. Most of my friends I've acquired, most of my ongoing friends, by the way, there's also a lifespan to friendship. So best right. friends, some people have best friends for life, but you know, they're, they last 10 to 20 years is sort of the median duration of a intimate friendship. doesn't mean you come to hate the other person. It just means that, and you can pick up the phone and pick up where you left off in many cases, but, but the kind of regular and easy familiarity does not last for forever in all friendships. Do you think uh, friendship is, is critical to marriage? Well, I'm best friends with my wife, but I don't think it's critical. I think there are different kinds of marriages that can be successful. And, you know, but I, but I think there are some marriages where you are best friends with your partner. And I think, I think that's great. I mean, I certainly, I certainly like that. Yeah. I certainly feel that, 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 that when sexual and romantic love slightly, inevitably has its fades a little bit away because it's by, of its nature, a relative, romance is a, a temporary phenomenon. I would agree with um, lust. No, not even that. I'm not, I don't know if I would agree with you. I think there are ways in long-term relationships you can keep romance alive and that kind of romantic sensibility. It's not that frisson of the new. I agree with you on that. But, and it ebbs and flows. You know, it's not always that intense longing, obsession, desire. But there are moments where it's there still and in many marriages. So I don't think, I don't think that, so yes, something is different about, 10 years into a marriage and 30 years into a marriage than one year into a marriage. I completely agree with that, but I wouldn't frame it as a loss of romance. I would, I would, some, <laughs> I would use a different word. It kind of turns into something a slightly different than it's original. And then it's, that's, that's what I would say. Yes. I want to return before we, before we uh, unfortunately have to wrap up is, is, is talking about the future 
for those of us with COVID. Should I get another booster? Are we about to hit? We, do, we don't know, right? We have absolutely no idea where the future is. It could be, you think, 1% to 10% really bad news. You've had, but in general, you've had three shots. Now, you have a little different history because I think I remember that you had HIV, right? <laughs> so you were you're immunocompromised, right? By by. Dis- yes, but not really. I think that's a, it, it, if, if my immune you system. Take your medicine, be, yeah. I think my meds and my immune system is indistinguishable from someone who's HIV right. negative, to be honest with you. I'm not really immune compromised. Okay. So I can't give a, a, a standard answer for this question. I think that if there are new variants and new vac- new boosters that are customized to those variants, then yes, I would get those those boosters. Whether you should have a fourth shot for the existing of the existing shots. I don't know if the evidence is compelling enough that the average person should get that. Um, How many months after your third shot should you be a little bit thinking well, about? Well, there are two. So now this is all immuno- immunology thing, which is, is sort of an, after all these agape and friendship and everything else we're talking yes, about. Yes, I know. Have, I'm trying to get you back to your scientific. Yeah, we're gonna, well, we're going to talk about little nitty gritty. Well, you're you know. a Renaissance man, Nicholas. You, well, thank you. You, that's, you, you that's, cover all of it. That's a very nice thing, very nice thing for you of you to say. True. So, um, so the first thing you need to understand is is the point of vaccination. If when you when you encounter an antigen, when you encounter a, a pathogen that has proteins on its surface, which are known as antigens, things that elicit an immune response from you, whether you encounter a pathogen naturally or you are vaccinated, your body mounts an immune response and you start making antibodies which circulate in your bloodstream. But you should have the intuition that it would be inefficient for our bodies to continue to manufacture antibodies to every disease we'd ever been exposed to in our lives. Once we've eradicated the disease from our body, why would we continue to make antibodies? That costs a lot of effort for ourselves to produce these antibodies. It would clog up our bloodstream with circulating antibodies to every disease we'd ever encountered. So that's not how the immune system works. After your acute immune response, when you produce antibodies that circulate, then your body uses something called memory immunity, where you have certain cells in your body that remember the antigens you've previously encountered, such that if you ever encounter them again, they can rapidly tool up and start producing antibodies against those antigens and also do other things like create certain kinds of killer T cells, so-called, and certain other cells that can fight off the infection. So you're in a state of readiness against infections you've previously encountered. And that's what vaccines do crucially. When I give you a tetanus shot, you don't get tetanus. You, you don't encounter tetanus in the next few months. We are training your body so that if you encounter tetanus 10 years from now or measles 20 years from now, you can mount a response as if you had previously you know, encountered it. You don't produce anti-measles antibodies for the next 100, you know, 50 years of your life. You just do it immediately and then it falls down. And the same thing happens when you encounter COVID. You encounter COVID naturally. Your body starts making antibodies. If you survive, Your body says, I remember when I fought off that infection and it's ready in case it's ever encountered it again. And the point of vaccination is to give you this memory immunity without the risk of death. I give you a shot instead, which can't kill you. And now you can fight off the infection if you ever encounter it. So every time you get a shot, two things happen. One, you get this acute boost in your antibody production, which helps you in the near term in case you happen to stumble on the pathogen in the near term. But more important, it primes your memory immunity to be ready for the long term. And repeated exposures tell your body, 
gee, you keep encountering this serious thing. You better be really ready for it the next time. So what's so the, the, the answer to your question is if you were to have a fourth shot, you might temporarily get a little extra benefit, but it's unclear whether it really will enhance the memory immunity capacity. Now, there's a lot of active research on this, and what I just told you may be partially true or maybe contravene soon. So I'm not prepared to take a definitive stand on whether you should get a fourth shot of the existing shots. If you haven't yet had, if you're listening to this and you've only had a couple of shots, you should get a booster. And there's good evidence now that getting a booster of a different shot, that if you got Moderna, get Pfizer. If you got Pfizer, get Moderna. If you got AstraZeneca, get Moderna or whatever. You know, switching it around is is good, is is beneficial. And and if you had an, if you already had the infection and survived it, you still should get a shot because or because there's evidence that multiple exposures are better. So people can get reinfected e- either after natural infection or after vaccination, and you really want to get your body prepared. So I've had three shots. I at the moment I'm not planning on getting a fourth shot, but I might I might change my mind, and I certainly will change my mind if they release bespoke boosters for new variants, which they might well do, which I'm sure they're going to do. I think in the long run, I think we're all going to be getting COVID shots every five years. I think it'll become like tetanus or like flu, where you they'll release new shots that cover the latest variants. And that will make a rational sense for us to get those. Well, that is incredibly sensible and helpful advice to our listeners and to me, although I have had, I've had I'm not really, but I had I had J and J, two Pfizer's and one Moderna, so I'm fine, right? I'm, yes, I'm, you've been over vaccinated. Yes. yes, I'd rather be over than under. I have to. Yes. I'm one of these people. I believe in the science, right? I I honestly, no one was gonna, no one was gonna persuade me that vaccines were not no, it's, it's amazing a, and important. People have actually lived, have actually grappled with their healthcare, had to, because serious threats emerged. Yes. Realize to stop this paranoia, this complete insanity around yes. advanced medicine. It's incredibly good. Yes. You are lucky as fuck yes. to be alive in 2022. Yes. You have no idea what these, you just read the previous plague. Just read yes. what happened to people. Or in my case, watch what happened to yes. in your own life and see what you're escaping. And, and uh, yes, this anti But on the other hand, it does seem to me that, for example, this crazy wave of anti vaccine or or vaccine denial is also a function of plagues, right? It's yes. a crazy sort of... Uh, well, it's, uh, an assert, I, it's, an, it's a desire to assert control, but it's a medieval response, right? I mean, yeah. we, as you said, we live in 2022. I mean, our ancestors had to put up with no defense against the pathogen. We have a defense. We've spent hundreds right. of years... Use it. Uh, of science, yes. Modern science. I mean, you know, and one of the ironies I always say is that, you know, people use this device. I'm holding up an iPhone. Which required don't hun- hold up the iPhone to me right now. Yeah, I have mine. I have traumatizing me all over yes. again. Where is my iPhone? Yes. It's been a whole twenty-four hours, and I haven't been able to hold my phone. I, just, yes. I feel completely emasculated. Yes. I, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Thank God I have an iPad. That's yes. the only thing I could possibly. Actually, every time it calls. Um, yeah, you could get text messages on that, like that your Lyft driver. He's still not responded. Ah. But the point is, the point is, people use this <laughs> other invention of science, yes. to to criticize vaccines. Like they're tweeting about how anti-vax sentiment. Right, I'm right, like, right, 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 right. how do you think your iPhone works? It took centuries of <laughs> engineers and doctors how to figure out how these things work. 
and and you're using this technology, but you're refusing to use vaccine technology. So anyway, there's a kind of kind yeah, of luddite, with you. you know, luddite perspective on medical care that I reject. But it's also a psychological response. And people back in the AIDS days would, I, I mean, I had them come into my office when I was in New Republic, and they were HIV positive, and they were insisting that they had no relationship to AIDS. That the HIV was different. It was swine virus or some other thing. They weren't going to. Of course, the people who were in my office died. And but I'm telling you, in all these plagues, there's a huge amount of nihilism. It's a way of coping. Yes, in a way. And and you're right. It's a way of asserting control. Nicholas, I am in your debt. This was a wonderful conversation, and I'm so happy that we were able to I'm connect. S- and uh, yeah, I mean, I've I've known of you and read you and felt like I knew you for so for you know however many years 15 or 20 years I'm so glad to meet you face to face and I yeah. look forward for more conversations Andrew absolutely this uh, let me just remind people that Apollo's arrow the profound enduring impact of coronavirus on the way we live is out there you can get it it's Nick Nicholas's book also we talked about blueprint the evolutionary origins of a good society also available if you're interested in my own essay on friendship, which we did touch, it's the last third of Love Undetectable, which is also on Amazon, from, from Aristotle, Aquinas, Montaigne, Emerson, Oakeshott. All the greatest writing about friendship is summarized and synthesized along with, in my case, a tribute to my best friend who died of AIDS. And, and that's partly why my passion for Montaigne is so great, because when you have lost someone you thought of your soulmate, it affects you and you remember it. Anyway, we'll see you next week. Yes. <laughs> we, we, and, and thanks again, Nicholas, for, for joining us. And thanks for listening. And also, one last thing. If you're listening to this, you love listening to this, please subscribe. I know we're giving it out for free, but we do need support uh, to pay for all the things that we do here. And so please subscribe if, you, if, you're, if you're free writing. Just give us, give us it's not much. It's, it's, it's Five bucks a month. It's, you won't notice it if you if you if you, if you would. So thank you for that, and we'll see you next week. We have incredible raft of guests coming up. I'm just trying to think because I always blank when I say that. Chris, what are we? Who are who's coming up? We have Jonathan Haidt. oh, we have Jonathan Haidt. We have Frank Fukuyama. We have some big thinkers coming on, and and we're looking forward to it. Thank you, Nicholas. Thank and you. see you all next week. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks so much, man. Aww.